Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Lord, open our eyes to these exhortations. Help us to put this together in our life, to analyze our lives against the standard, the plumb line of Your Word. I pray for those who are separated from Christ that the beauty of the life to which Jesus calls us and indeed produces in us through His Spirit would draw them to the light of salvation in Christ. I pray for those who know You as Savior and ask God that we would be brought to conviction to change Encourage our hearts as we consider Your truth together today. Thank You for this passage. It is convicting. We need Your aid. And I pray that as we have already prayed, that we, as we pray again, that You will take this Word and plant it deep within us. Shape and fashion us for Your glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. January 1927 edition of the Harvard Crimson reported an interview with the esteemed Indian philosopher and political activist Mahatma Gandhi. The article claimed that Gandhi appreciated the teachings and the influence of Jesus but but did not respect his followers. Gandhi's been quoted, misquoted, and abused on this line many, many times over, but the Crimson reported these words, that he said it this way, I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. Well, truthfully, Gandhi did not like Christ either, just the Christ of his own imagination. He was comfortable with that Christ, but not the Christ that we find in Scripture not the full vision of Christ. And Gandhi's rejection of the church of Jesus Christ, for whom Christ died, was indeed a rejection of Christ Himself. But we need to give Him this. Gandhi recognized that Christ's followers are called to live like Jesus. Not merely to revere Him, not merely to honor Him, but to live as He lived. To take on His character. His moral depth. Yes, the Christian religion is a religion of truth. 
There is a body of doctrine that we must know. We must come to understand that body of doctrine. We must indeed believe that body of doctrine as God's revealed truth. But that doctrine is intended to change behavior. It's meant to shape and fashion us into the likeness of Christ as we've just been singing. United by faith to Jesus Christ, we have learned in the book of Romans, sin's power is broken in the life of the believer. And by the power of Christ's indwelling Spirit, we are then to live morally transformed lives. If my knowledge of Jesus, if my knowledge of the Bible, if it does not change the way that I live from the way that I used to live, if it does not change the way that I live from the way that a godless world lives, my Christianity is dead. It's useless. It's just theory, not Christ. And if we would put a face on that radical, spiritual, ethical transformation, that face is Jesus Christ. It's His image. It's who He was and is and will ever be. Christian, our calling... It's simple. We know it. But let's face it. Our calling is to be like Christ. We must learn to see life from His perspective. We must learn His wisdom and apply it to life. We must adopt His attitudes, affections, service, and love for God and for others. We are not following simply His teachings and approving some and discarding others. We are following a person. And the likeness of Christ is to shape our very being. In practical, nearly bullet point terms, Romans 12, 9-16, indeed through 21, displays what a Christ-like life looks like. We're going to reserve verses 17 to 21 because they are so significant to the trials that we face with others and particularly those that are opposed to us. But as we look at verses 9 through 16 today, three fitting or necessary observations, orienting observations uh, to help us through. First of all, as I mentioned, these are essentially bullet points. Douglas Moo calls them a volley of short, sharp injunctions. If you're some reading from the Greek text. You won't find many imperatives here, but I think that's the right way to, to interpret, to translate the passage. They come across as such bullet points, such rapid-fire directives that they're not really even put in imperatival form. They just, they just hit us as concepts. But they have that force, and I think it's rightly translated that way. Second orienting point is love. Love is the thread that holds all of this together. Verse 9 starts with, let love be genuine in some sense it's like a banner over this passage. I think we can overread it that way, but we certainly don't want to pull out the theme of love that flows through the text. Thirdly, we have a communal aspect here. I believe that everything that is said here in verses 9 through 21 is really directed to a body of believers. 
It's to be put into play as a body of believers. And there's a reference here and there to how we relate to the world. But even there, I think it's about how we relate to one another as believers in the church. And then in that way, where it breaks out into relationship with unbelievers. So this is a very church-rooted conversation. How we relate to one another in the body of Christ. That being said... And let me say, these bullet points, you really can't organize them into an outline. None of the outlines I've looked at are convincing, and they look like commentators that are going through withdrawals because they don't know how to deal with a passage without outlining it. These are bullet points, and I I just don't think there's any way that we can look at it and group it without imposing on the text something that's not there. I do think that each statement is related they hold together they're tied together but not in a way like we're used to grouping them in some idea so you'll need to plow with me through that there's no orienting outline here today at all but as we take it as they hit us let's consider i don't know 18 20 little sermonettes that almost hit us through this don't count, I, or, or do count, get it over with and tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> I didn't think about that until right now, how many there actually are. But let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. In the Greek text, it is the love, which I think here is a reference to Christian love, that kind of love that is unique in Christ, the kind of love that results from our union with Jesus Christ, the kind of love he's been talking about in this book particularly as we think of chapters 6 through 8. So the emphasis here is how we relate to one another as Christ's people. That unique love for one another is to be genuine. Your love for one another, my love for you, yours for me, as we relate to one another, it's not to be staged love. It's not to be fakey or hypocritical. Not showy It is to be sincere, loving service to others. In our godless world, love is widely confused with illicit sex on one hand or sentimentality on the other. Someone making much of me is how the world defines love. But it's not how Christ defined love. Christ-like love gives what is best for others and does so with genuine sincerity. It pours its life out for the good of the beloved. And it does so at any cost necessary to self. And we see this in the cross of Christ in His giving His life for us. We are to love genuinely, sincerely, We are to abhor what is evil. And in some senses, we would stitch together these phrases, love itself abhors what is evil. Genuine love flowing from our union with Christ is not the kind of love that welcomes sin. It is the kind of love that despises evil. We must not laugh about evil. It's not a funny thing. We must not flirt with it. We must not find it comfortable, cozy up to it, grasp on to sinful ideas and practices and feel cool about being cool about them. A follower of Christ despises evil. We learn to hate pride. 
We learn to hate injustice and greed and abuse and gossip and idolatry and immorality in relationships. We don't cozy up there, but we say, I'm at war with those things. I'm at war with those things in my own heart as the idolatries of this world penetrate my heart and I grab onto them and I am against them and I am at war with them. I'm not comfortable with those things. As the world looks at me, may they say there's someone who hates breaking God's law. There's one who hates what is evil. And coupled to that is the command to hold fast to what is good. Our abhorrence of evil is to be matched by a warm, enthusiastic devotion to what is good. We will celebrate good. We will rejoice when we see people love and serve God. That will bring joy to our heart. We long to see children obey their parents and mates demonstrate devotion to one another. That warms our heart. That thrills our soul. We love to see that as relationships thrive that way. We love it when truth is spoken. We love to see people obeying God. We love to see justice for the weak and vulnerable, for outcasts and for the forgotten. And so, on the one hand, we hate abortion. And we love the mercy of birth. The goodness and the grace of God. We are to live as if married to all that is good. We're to display a deep devotion to everything that corresponds to God's character. And one thing that separates us from Jesus is right here at this place, we do not hate evil like He hated it. And we don't love good like He loved it. May we be molded into His likeness to have a genuine abhorrence toward what is wicked. Not laugh about it, not cozy up to it, but hate it. And may we love what is good, which will lead us, of course, to love others and to love God Himself. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. This supports the idea that love runs like a thread through the passage. It also enforces the idea that Paul focuses primarily on relationships within the church Uh, at Rome and here as it applies to us. We are to pursue familial love. The love of a large family relating to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Parents, one thing it's easy for us to hate, isn't it, is sibling rivalry. We don't like that. We want our children to love each other, to receive each other, to have a warm relationship with one another. And I'd say it was pretty high on the list in the Miller home that this was a problem, right? The sibling rivalry was an issue. And we didn't like it as mom and dad. And now that our children are into adulthood, and they get together, and they love each other, we love that. We long for that. It's it's beautiful to see that unity there. And I ask you, church member, do you think that our Heavenly Father thinks differently when He sees 
brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, warring at each other's throat, not getting along, disregarding one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. Show that type of love to those within your assembly. It's beautiful. As it's beautiful in a home where children love one another, so it's beautiful in a church when members lovingly relate to each other with tender regard and familial devotedness. This is the opposite. This command in Christ's likeness is the opposite of encouraging cliques within the church. Friends that isolate to themselves. We should seek out those who are like us. We should seek out those who like us. We should never stop there. We should seek out those who are unlike us. We should seek out those where there is trouble and struggle and know that we bring pleasure to our Father's heart when we love all of our brothers and sisters in Christ as a family of God. We will not, we cannot spend equal amounts of time with everyone. We will not, we cannot find the same exact joy in our relationships with every person. But every member of the assembly is a brother in Jesus Christ. Every woman is a sister in Jesus Christ. All who have been baptized and identified with the church and those growing up around the fringes of that, they are God's people. And we recognize them as family members. Every member of this church is a brother or sister for whom Jesus died. And therefore one that we should receive in brotherly affection. And that realization should shape the way then that we move toward one another. How do you naturally respond when you do not feel such tenderness toward another Christian member, another brother or sister in the church? the natural thing to do is to place the blame on that person. You might not say it, we might not articulate it this way, but we're thinking, if that person was different, I wouldn't have this problem. Learn to read your own heart at such times. You are almost certainly part of the problem, if not the problem. It's not the other person It's moving toward one another as brothers and sisters in one family. And receiving and recognizing, receiving one another and recognizing this task. We are to outdo one another in showing honor, verse 10. The translation is a bit debatable, and if you're looking in a different translation, you might see that. But uh, we may take this as prefer one another in honor, or take it as the ESV does. But the point is really the same in the end. We are to zealously show honor to one another, to esteem one another highly. This is a distinctly Christian virtue. By nature, what do we want to do? We want to get honor. We want to grasp honor. We prefer ourselves over others. I naturally esteem me. But Genuine Christians labor to honor one another. This is love in work clothes. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Jesus purchased us with His blood. And as Titus 2 says, Jesus saved us in part to make us zealous for good works. 
One of the clear evidences that I've been genuinely born again is that there is a fire in my soul to serve Christ. There is an energized passion to spread God's kingdom and to spread God's glory. I want to be part of that. The next two directives providing the positive parallels to this. Don't be slothful in zeal, but rather be fervent in spirit. I agree with the ESV that this is a reference to the human spirit, but of course energized by the Holy Spirit. The opposite of slothful in zeal is this, being fervent in spirit. While we need God's intervening grace to give us such fire in our souls, notice that we're also to pursue it. I'm to go after it. I want to want this zeal for God. And I'm going to pursue such affections for Him. So when we come to worship, when we gather for prayer, when we partner in missions, we must strive to engage with a zealous, fervent spirit. And I speak to you, church member, as you are, have entered into the relationship of this assembly, do we actively pursue zeal? for the things of God. That's work. You've got to go after it. It doesn't hit you like pixie dust from above. You seek to nurture a zeal for the Lord as the way, in the way that you pursue Him, in the way that you speak to others, in the relationships that you enjoy. Indeed, then we go on, not in a lazy, lethargic, Christian way in which I'm waiting to be impressed, which is how so many Christians at least seem to relate to their church. I'm here with folded arms waiting to be impressed by the church. Wrong thinking. If we're being molded by Christ, we are anxiously pursuing within ourselves, working at this, to see a zeal for God. A spirit moved to love Him and serve Him with the joy of the Lord. Indeed, that next phrase, to serve the Lord. A fervent spirit, a Christian on fire for Christ, is not merely filled with fire. It's not just emotion. It's not just that zeal that goes nowhere or some ardor for God. He is a Christian who works. She is a believer who gets busy for God. They worship Him in service and they serve Him in worship. They do not merely emote. They push the cause of Christ forward with energy and with conviction. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve Christ the Lord. And so, Christian brothers and sisters, when we go to church, we should gather with God's people with a spiritual hard hat on with our work clothes on. It's time to go to work. As we come to prayer, say on a Wednesday night, as we gather in that group, and it's you know 20 below zero and dark outside, and, and you're tired, it takes a zeal and effort forward as we strive to make that prayer time relevant and helpful to all. As we go about teaching classes, as we practically usher and provide security and greet individuals as they come into the assembly, as we 
work to care for children in the nursery, as we gather with home groups, as we reach out to our community and as we pursue evangelistic endeavor together. In all of this, we can kind of just be going through the motions or we can be driven by the fire of God. The Apostle Paul says to us, to the Roman church, but he says to us, go get that. Not just wait for it to hit you, but go after it. Love what Christ loves. Serve Him with gladness. Pursue that life. Be zealous servants. Not biding time. Not pacing. Not the gerbil on the wheel. But going forward in zeal for Christ. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Hope, what's hope? Hope is that future prospect of God's promises. The deliverance from the presence of sin that He promises, the resurrection that He promises, the glorification that He promises, eternity with Christ in His presence. That's the hope that's out there before us. The response to that hope when it is set before our eyes and we are focused upon it is joy. The true Christian is always a pilgrim. The Christ-like Christian is always on a journey. And the prospect of reaching home fills us with joy. There is a sadness in our spirit as we live in such a broken, fallen, and corrupt world. I can't shake free of that sadness. I'm not sure I should. There's a sadness in our spirit as we battle sin. I can't shake free of that sadness. I don't like what Dan Miller's doing. I don't like what goes on in my heart. I don't like what I think about at times. I'm not at peace with that. I'm at war with that indwelling sin. And so there's a sadness that is there in all of that. But there is a joy that should overwhelm the sadness when we consider what God has promised. Where we are going, the hope that is there before us, We do not run away from the realities of a broken world and a sinful heart. But we do say there is hope. There is the promise of God that is there in the future. That I will enter into His presence forgiven. Do you hear that as we sung it this morning? It's just so moving to know that that day is coming. Sin will be gone. And Christ will be all. That hope fills me with joy. It should, it should mark us. Be patient in tribulation, he continues. This ties in nicely with the word hope. Tribulations and trials visit us all. They're visiting you right now. There are tribulations that you are facing as a follower of Christ, but the follower of Christ does not despair. The one tracking with Jesus doesn't turn into despair. Rather, we face the harsh realities of a fallen world with patient endurance. That hope set out before us, that pilgrimage, we keep plodding forward in endurance. We don't give up. We don't run away. And we don't turn to other idols. Other false, to turn to false gods. We endure patiently. We have, so to speak, a metal rod up our spine which enables us to endure trials in a way that unbelievers cannot. It's a grief when you think of it. 
But the unbeliever is leaning wholly on self and imaginary gods. That's it. There's nothing there. And so there's no way to endure patiently the tribulations of life. For those of us who know Christ, there is a hope that is there. So we can endure whatever God assigns to us. He didn't promise it would be easy. He never told us to look within and find the strength ourselves. But He has promised there is a future for you. This time is limited. Endure to the end. And I'll give you strength. In fact, I'll walk with you. So be constant in prayer links into this too so nicely. To pursue Christ's likeness means that we will strive to breathe prayers to God through each day. I don't want trials in my life. I'm not asking for them. But I have to say, with a lot of gray hairs on my head, well, not as many as there used to be, but I've got to say that through these experiences, that's when you pray. When you really pray consistently and fervently throughout a day, so often is when you're dealing with trials that you recognize are over your head. Well, we need to pray at all times that way, but certainly in the midst of tribulations, to breathe prayers to God as He strengthens His people. That was the dependence we saw in Jesus as He trusted His Father during His earthly ministry. And that's the dependence that we should be demonstrate as we breathe prayers of, of trust in the Lord day by day. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Generally speaking, this means that as a spiritual family, we must detect one another's needs and supply them as appropriate. I think in the context of the day, that probably is, is at issue here as well, and that's that believers traveled. Jesus made us pilgrims and He sent us out into all the world and Christians travel a lot because of that as they make those types of connections with one another. And as itinerant preachers, evangelists, missionaries were going out, they needed a place to stay. Didn't they have Super 8? No, they didn't. On a lot of levels, inns in that time were usually places of ill repute. They were places of danger and they were expensive. And the average Christian itinerant missionary would not have the capacity to stay at such a place, nor would they really want to. And so you just always had to have an open door that welcomed someone in, that took them in, in their ministry, in their labors, and that seems to be what Paul is speaking of particularly. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute is the Greek word koinonia. We don't think of it in this context very often, but that word often translated fellowship. It speaks of a partnering together in the cause of Christ as we meet the needs that need to be supplied. The parallel idea there in verse 13 is seek to show hospitality. Seek means to pursue with energetic zeal. Hospitality is showing kindness to strangers. The opposite attitude is to fear strangers or to, fe- to view their needs as a burden. Here's Christ-like love. Are you pursuing it? Am I? Christ-like love intentionally 
actively gives itself away to others, meeting needs, extending welcome, supplying hope. That's Christ-like as we relate to others. And you see here again, love is at the heart of it all. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Tom Schreiner calls this, quote, one of the most revolutionary statements in the New Testament. Might be right. What do we naturally do when someone persecutes us? I think persecution for Christ, for your Christian testimony, but I don't know that it's limited to that. We can be persecuted by other Christians sometimes. What's our natural response? Retaliation. That's natural. Our natural response is to escape. Our natural response is to curse our oppressor. To say words of judgment. This is natural to us. But the followers of Christ are called to prayer. They're called to ask God to bestow His favor on their oppressors. Stories told of Richard Wormbrandt, who was a Christian in communist Romania and spent much time in prison and much time under torture for Christ. And he ran onto the wrong side of one guard as he prayed. Richard prayed in his cell. But this guard said, you're going to stop doing that. And he beat him. He went back to prayer soon after, and the guard came back and beat him again. And he just kept beating him and beating him and beating him as he prayed. And he got to the point, the guard got to the point where you could tell he just didn't want this to happen anymore. Would you please just quit praying? He found him praying again. And he beat him again. It said to him, why don't you quit? What are you doing? What are you praying about? And Richard told him, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And the guy just about fell back on the floor and walked away. Didn't know what to do with that. Formal persecution is in view here, but certainly it trickles down into the lesser opposition that we face from people. How do we respond? And I ask you this question. Here's where Jesus' character and being molded into the likeness of Christ doesn't feel very good. How do you respond to those who make your life miserable? Do you pray blessing upon them? It's a difficult discipline, but it is sanctifying. There are people who have made my life very hard at times, as is true with yours. I find that denouncing them is easy. Praying God's blessing upon them is not easy. But it is sanctifying. It yanks the roots of bitterness from the soil of our hearts. See if that's not true. Pray for those who make your life hard. Pray God's blessing and mercy upon them. And see where it takes your heart. Our tongue should flow with blessing, not with curses, not with bitter denunciation. That's not Christ-like. 
He blessed His enemies. Verse 15, Rejoice. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Births, weddings, graduations, promotions, ministry opportunities, vacations, rewards. When believers and especially those of your church family experience such joys, love chooses to rejoice with them. It doesn't get jealous. It doesn't, it's not dismissive. It joins in lovingly like a family and rejoices with. Chrysostom observed that this is ironically probably harder than the next directive. But love will do it. It will rejoice with those who rejoice. Secondly, it will weep with those who weep. Verse 15, disease, injury, loss, failure, disappointment, and death. When believers, especially those of your church family, suffer such trials, Christ-like people join in on the weeping. When we experience joy or when we weep due to suffering, it does not qualify us to dictate terms regarding how others must rejoice with us and how others must grieve with us. Don't read it from that angle. If I suffer or rejoice, my job is to tell others how to respond. Or I have a right to insist upon their response according to my directives. I don't think that's at all what Paul's pointing at here, but what he's pointing at is from the other direction. So this verse does not put a scepter in the hands of those who suffer and rejoice, but it calls us to move toward one another with loving consideration and grace at such times. It calls us to note those who are rejoicing to discern that, to have a, uh, an antenna up in a sense, to have a radar out there. Here's somebody who's rejoicing. I'm going to enter in by rejoicing with them. Here's somebody who is weeping. I'm going to enter in by sensing that sorrow with them and sharing it. That's what he's calling us to. That's Christ-like. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. It's a rather loose translation of the Greek, but I think a legitimate one. The, the same thing toward one another thinking is the idea. The same thing toward one another thinking. That is to pursue a common mindset with one another. This does not mean that we'll never disagree or that we must draw the same conclusions about everything. It means that we must labor to be unified. We must labor, we must endeavor to secure peace with one another. It's the opposite of gossiping about each other. It is the opposite of factions and divisions where church members pick sides and huddle up with their team. It's precisely the opposite of that. Harmony seeks to think like the other person, not say, you don't think like me, therefore you're no good. You don't think like me, therefore I'm better. It's saying, we're not thinking alike, let's work on bringing our minds together and thinking the same way. It's the opposite of sowing dissension. It's the Spirit that says we are one in Jesus. Next, verse 16, do not be haughty. That is, do not think too highly of yourself. Thirdly, but rather associate with the lowly. The haughty person looks to identify with those who are popular, 
those who are charismatic, or at least those who are ideal friends. The humble, the Christ-like, rejoice to reach out to the weak, to the lowly, to the poor, to the disenfranchised, to the outcast. That's Christ-likeness. It's easy to want to come close to someone who will do you good and make you look good. Jesus calls us to go in the other direction. Not to avoid the first as such, but to reach out to those who may not make us look good, who may not do us any good. But love says, I can do you good. I receive you. I welcome you. I build you up in Christ. How many, how many of the lowly have come to Jesus because of this? And it's been a criticism of the Christian faith from early days. It's just calibrated to the weak and the poor. They're the ones who respond to Christ. All the outcasts of society. And what do we say? Amen and amen. Because you tell me where else the weak and the poor find hope. It's not in this world but it is in Christ. May we be His servants to reach out, not in a haughty way, but to associate with the lowly, not being wise in our own sight. A Christ-like loving Christian listens to others. She remains open to reason. He admits that he can be wrong, and when wrong, he confesses his sin. Christ-like believers are humble, reasonable people, not self-oriented, not filled with self. As I said, we're going to stop at verse 17. We shouldn't. We should go right through verse 21. But there is so much here for us to think differently than the world in which we live and the heart that we hold. And so, by God's grace, He'll allow us to consider this next week. But let me say just a few things as we consider 9 through 16. This is not an arbitrary list. This is who Jesus is. We've been looking into the face of Christ as we hear these commands. And, Christian, it's who you are. This is the positive side of the bondage of sin that Christ has broken on the other side. This is what He's freed us to do. This is who He's made us to be. This is who in Christ I am. This person. If we lived who we were, if we displayed our relationship with Christ as revealed in Romans 6 through 8, what would happen? Marriages would thrive. There wouldn't be a discussion of divorce. Parents and children would live in harmony. In the church, there would be no cliques, no factions, no divisions, no animosity or rejection of one another. There would be a warm receptiveness of this large family. No, it's not there. Not in perfection. Not in my life. Not in yours. Not in this church. Not in your family. Not in your heart. I think we have to come to terms with the folly here of shifting the blame onto one another. 
is not a list of how harmony and love is possible if your pastors, if your church members, if your family members, and if your enemies would all get their act together and start treating you the way you ought to be treated. It's not that at all, is it? This is a list of directives that call us to act in Christ-like love toward one another, to take the responsibility, which love does always, to reach into the life of others and to break through barriers that separate and divide very naturally. We need to change. You need to change and I need to change. We need to be molded into the likeness of Christ. And how much so also at verse 17 and following when we talk about how to relate to enemies. This is Christ-like and it's radically different than the world in which we live and what we find so often in our heart. But as we live out this life, by God's grace, we will be light in a dark world. There are proud, dismissive critics like Gandhi who will be impressed by nothing but themselves. But may our light, by God's grace, shine brightly in a morally dark world. May we display the reconciling love of Jesus to a world steeped in self-serving pride and division. May the church be an island of loving relationships in a sea of hostility and war. There's great wonder here, isn't there? This is the life to which Jesus has called us. And perhaps this touches a chord with you if you do not know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Be honest with yourself as you look in and depend on your own idolatries, your own self-serving purposes. Be honest and realize you're empty. You're building a life on nothing. It's caving in from the inside, isn't it? I would encourage you, if you find yourself in that place, to come to the moral beauty of Christ, but to recognize that it's not just appreciating His moral beauty. I think Gandhi may have done that on some level. But what it is, is coming to the truth of what Christ has done to change us and how He has provided for that change. And that is in what we call the good news in Christ taking our sin and paying the price, the cost, justifying Himself for forgiving the sinner by paying the price in the death of Christ. Rising from the dead to defeat that penalty and to give us His resurrection life, which begins to look like what we've seen here. I invite you to come to Christ and to enter into that new life. Not just to get a new life, but to meet Christ and allow that relationship to transform everything about you. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, I was thankful Elliot read from the Psalter and yet referenced John thirteen thirty-five. How fitting, how appropriate here that all will know that we are Christ's disciples by the love that we have for one another. This is a high and holy calling to live in the love of Christ. May He give us strength to that end. May it transform the way 
my heart works, our families operate, and this church family operates. May we reach through the divides and into one another's life to love as Christ has loved us, sacrificially, faithfully, with unending devotion until we enter his presence. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for your kindness to us in Christ. Deepen us through these words of counsel from the pen of the Apostle. Thank you for the conviction and for the hope that is here, that we can, by your grace, become Christ-like people who demonstrate love to one another because you've demonstrated love to us in Jesus. Draw us to that light. Draw us to that good news. May you be exalted in our lives in response. Through Jesus we pray.